0: Um, pictures. The other thing,
1: if you hear any thumping during the night, it's probably the engineers upstairs building something, so you'll ignore them be well. Okay. Aaron, sorry. No, fine, thank you. Hey, can y'all me okay? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna try it with the mic, and if it gets terrible, I'll try without the mic, but uh, I wanna make sure everybody in the back can hear, if possible. So, thank y'all so much for having me out. I really appreciate this, letting me come and get up on my very favorite soapbox. Um, I will do the best to return the favor by trying not to go too far over time. Can you all hear me in the back if I just talk like this? Yeah, great. Screw that. Um, <laughs> wonderful. I will project like a proper Thespian. Alright, so, uh, today I want to talk about a cluster of really important concepts that I'm personally deeply obsessed with and compelled to constantly talk about. Uh, issues related to moral luck, um, which ties in with ethics, ties in with free will, ties in with the concept of control. So uh, I'm going to try to put this all together in a way that roughly makes sense. I'm going to start, as usual, uh, when philosophers start. We start by trying to define some terms. So what I mean by luck for our purposes tonight is anything that is beyond some individual's control, right? Think of the luck of the die, right, the luck of the draw. So we're going to be talking primarily about control here, and I'm going to show why in a second, but I'm an audience participation kind of speaker, so I'm going to start by finding out a little bit about y'all here. So I want to understand what perspective you have intuitively on the subject of control before I dive into this. So let me start here. Show of hands, how many would agree with this claim? Everything is under your control. One... Just a contrarian? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. No, I didn't expect a lot of fans of The Secret here this evening, so I'm I'm not surprised. that We'll dispense with this view for now. What about this one? Right, the partial control view. Some things are under your control and some things are not. Yeah, that one tends to get most, maybe if not the majority of folks. And then... This view, right? Nothing. Nothing is under your control. All right, good. So I've already got some converts. And for the rest of you, my goal here this evening is to try to get you from view two to view three with as little existential crisis as possible, right? I genuinely believe in the no control view. I think that... I will control you via argument is the way this is going to work, right? I think that... Ultimately, there is no such thing as anyone having robust kind of control. And the sooner we accept that, the better off things will be for all of us. Now, I think a lot of you actually have some connection to this view already through various kinds of uh, cultural terminology that you might not have associated this way, right? So how many of you believe that something like privilege exists in the world? Some people have more privilege than others. Right, good. Right? Systemic inequality is probably something that most skeptics, I think, in the world today would say exists. These are the kinds of things that you will see lead to a lack of control. Also, I think modern science pretty clearly lays out solid arguments for how we do not, in fact, have robust control. Though I won't be relying too much on scientific arguments tonight. Um, I don't know if anybody in here is on the right. Uh, but for those who are, right, often this kind of idea on the right usually takes a religious kind of form, right, in the sense of there but for the grace of God go I. The idea that it could just as easily have been you in that terrible situation. So why talk about control, right? When we talk about free will, oftentimes you'll hear people talk about choice, right? I chose to pick this apple instead of this chocolate cake for my dinner, right? I think that choice is kind of a problematic concept though. When you talk about things like, I could have chosen to do otherwise, it's not often clear what you mean, right? You did the thing you did. You were, that was the thing that you were determined to do. There's no world that we're aware of in which you did otherwise. So what does it mean to say, I could have done otherwise? I think it leads one down a kind of philosophical uh, blind alley. Whereas I think talking about control makes a lot of sense and it ties into what we really actually care about when we talk about free will. What we mean is I myself, some independent thing within me, has enough control that I freely chose to do this thing instead of that thing. Does that make sense, I think? Right, so what depends on this, right? You've probably all heard someone talk about free will at this point amongst the philosophical debates. It's more more mainstream. Sam Harris likes to argue about it on a regular basis, for example. So, the other reason I think control is the right way to go here is when we understand what really depends on free will, right? Some of you may not think that anything does, that this is a pointless philosophical debate. I'm going to try to show why I think this is a really, really important debate. Right? Uh, the things that to me depend most on free will are moral responsibility and independent selfhood. As you'll see, when we talk about holding someone morally accountable, usually what we what was required is that they have control over the thing that they were held morally responsible for. And similarly, when we think of ourselves, right, your, your internal narrative of who you are as an independent entity, usually you are thinking about the things that you believe you have control over. Often your beliefs, your your life decisions, your career choices, maybe, if you're lucky. Um, so, this is what we call the control condition. Right? The control condition says this. We can only be held morally responsible for things that are under our control. How many of you would agree with that claim? Right. We try to... All right, we'll, we'll mess with an example here in a second, right? The question is going to be, can we actually follow this condition? I believe this is an intuitively very plausible claim, that it gets very weird to think about holding someone morally responsible for something that is in no way under their control. But the problem may be that nothing is under our control. And this is where we get to this idea of moral luck. So what I mean by moral luck? Moral luck is any situation where you are held morally responsible for something that is not under your control. And I will argue that's all the situations by the end of this, right? But I'll give you an easy example for starters, right? Let's imagine, I'm a big sci-fi guy, right? Let's imagine that I build a machine, takes over your body, and I use your body to go on a wild killing spree, right? How many people would think that when you regain control of your body, it would make sense morally, for us to hold you responsible for anything that happened while you were under control of my machine. Right. Nobody, it seems like. That seems absurd, right? You weren't in control. How could we possibly blame you, hold you accountable in any reasonable kind of way? The question then becomes, are there any situations that are sufficiently different from that kind of mind control scenario? And I'm going to argue no. So I'm going to argue that by looking at a couple of different kinds of luck, okay? So two of these, I think, are manageable, and one of them is not, right? So the ones that are manageable, first we have luck in how your actions turn out, right? Luck of consequences. Uh, Easy example will be successful murder versus attempted murder, right? Mm -hmm. Two people raise a gun to try to shoot a person, And in one scenario, a bird happens to fly in front of the bullet just at the right moment. person doesn't get killed, right? Those two things, it seems like, don't actually seem that morally different, though we do treat them that way in real life. So that's just one example, and we'll dive into it a little bit more here in a second. The next one is luck in one's circumstances. These are all of the kinds of luck that go into the situations that you experience throughout your life. Classic example, of course, being being born anywhere besides 1930s Germany, right? If you were born in 1930s Germany, you would face very different problems than you are born anywhere else except, you know, maybe America in the next 10 years, right? We'll see how it goes. (laughs) Let's all hold out hope here for the time being, right? And reasonably, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, right, If you were born in that place and time in 1930s Germany, we'd all like to hope we'd be resistance fighters. The reality is most of us would be Nazis, right? Those of us who didn't end up in the camps. So those two, I think, are manageable. This one, this is where things are really going to get tricky. Constitutive luck. This is the luck of all of the things that go into making you who you are right? Every piece of yourself can ultimately be traced back to things beyond your control. And that's where things are going to get really tricky. So let's start with the low-hanging fruit, right? Luck and how things turn out, such as in the case of successful murder versus attempted murder. Now, most folks will admit the reality is your, the consequences of your actions are often beyond your control. If anyone here is familiar with Stoicism, for example, very popular in a lot of a lot of parts of the skeptic movement these days, right? They're very honest about the idea that, you know, you go out onto a field to play a game, you don't have total control over whether you're going to win that game or not, right? So your options are either be really concerned about winning the game and be unhappy most of the time, or focus on what you can have control over, they would argue, right? And have things work out better for you. Um, so... As I said, there are situations in the world today where it seems like we hold people morally accountable in different ways depending on the consequences of their actions, right? If two individuals run stop signs for the same reason and in the same way, but one of them is unlucky enough that a child runs out into the street at the wrong time, one of them has killed a person and the other one hasn't, right? How do we deal with that luck? If we genuinely believe the control condition, like we said earlier, it seems like we have to treat those two people the same way. right? The person who killed the kid didn't have control over whether that child ran out into the street or not. And so it seems like holding them accountable for that leads to problems. So there are a couple of different ways that we can potentially try to address this. right? You might not yet be convinced that this undermines all of our understanding about free will, right? You could argue, uh, as Kant does, for example, that we could focus our moral judgment down to the action itself, right? Or down to the intentions of the action, if the person did it with good intentions or something. Or we might just hold the two people the same level of guilty, right? We're not likely to do that, but it might be a solution to the problem. And here, I'm going to give you... um, this is, this is from Kant. This is one of the nicest, most likable passages from Kant. It's actually readable, so I'm going to read it to you. Though note, it's only one sentence, right? <laughs> because Kant. Um, but it's a beautiful passage, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little dramatic reading here. So Kant says, right, a good will, the will, your motivative force, is good, not because of what it affects or accomplishes, not because of its fitness in attaining some intended end, but good just by its willing. Even if, by some particular disfavor of fate or by the scanty endowment of a stepmotherly nature, this will should entirely lack the capacity to carry through on its purpose, if despite its greatest striving, it should still accomplish nothing and only the goodwill were to remain, not of course as a mere wish, but as the summoning of all means that were at its, under its control, then, like a jewel, it would still shine by itself as something of, that has full worth in itself, right? Kant was terrified about the idea of moral luck. He wanted all of morality to be perfectly rational. And if there were these problems of luck, that wasn't going to happen. So he focused all of his ethics down into questions of the intent, the will itself. And we're going to see why that doesn't really work, unfortunately, for Kant. Right? But that could be one solution at least for the luck of consequences. Right? We can say the intent of the two drivers was the same, right? They were both looking at their phones instead of watching the road and therefore should be held equally accountable, right? A similar move you've probably seen made with regard to the luck of circumstances, right? It's often phrased in terms of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? The idea that even individuals born in horrible circumstances could through enough will and grit and determination, right, rise up and prove their status, overcome their negative luck, etc. Now, that may not be most appealing to y'all. If y'all tend to be towards the left, you may be sort of unsympathetic to those kind of appeals. You might understand enough of the realities of circumstantial injustice, for example, to know that it doesn't really work that way. People can't just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, as it were. But for some people, this is a sufficient solution to the problem of circumstances, just like to the problem of consequences. If you didn't succeed well, you just didn't try hard enough, right? The problem lies that both of those attempts to drive down towards the will end up stuck with the issue of constitutive luck. So here's... Nagel from one of my very favorite papers of all time, right? He says, how can one be responsible even for the stripped down acts of the will itself if they are the product of antecedent circumstances outside of the will's control, right? Because if we're being honest with ourselves, right, we have to acknowledge that everything about us can be traced back to luck in the sense of things beyond our control. How you ended up in this room, you happened to meet the right person, right? How you um, ended up being interested in skepticism, right? All of these kinds of things can tie back to luck. I often do an exercise, and I'm happy to do this with anyone who's skeptical still after this conversation, right? It's a kind of um, infinite regress argument, right? So for anything, You probably some of you have in your mind right now something where you're saying to yourselves, but I still have control over this, right? Of that thing, we may ask, did you choose that thing or did you not choose it? Right? If you didn't choose it, then it wouldn't make sense to say you willed it. And if you did choose it, we may ask why. Did you have a reason for choosing it or did you not? If you didn't have a reason... It doesn't seem like it's the right kind of willing. It seems, again, like luck, right? It's the same as saying you you got there via the roll of the die. But if you do have a reason, we can then ask, what is it that made you the kind of individual who would be compelled by that reason, and not one of the many other reasons that could have motivated an alternative behavior at that particular moment, right? And if you say, well, I happen to be constituted in such a way that uh, you know, I'm compelled by a good argument. For example, right? I'm, I want to know the truth, and so I'm going to chase down the truth. We can ask, "What brought you to care so much about the truth?" Well, I was raised by such and such parents who were, comp- you know, cared about the truth or something like that. Did you choose your parents? Right? <laughs> Maybe. If even if you did, right? What did you choose them based on? What were the reasons? Oh, well, I was such that they seemed like good people, and, you know, like, you keep tracing it back far enough, and you inevitably get to a point in your life, at least, right, young enough in your life, that you clearly did not have control over that thing, right? So if we can trace everything back that way, it ultimately seems like Nothing is under our control. Now this works for both monumental behaviors and trivial ones, right? People when they tend to push back on this, they'll either point towards, you know, oh, well, I raised my right hand instead of my left hand, right? Which is not a particularly compelling form of behavior, but you might think it's free, right? But the reality is, you know, you raised your hand because you were trying to prove me wrong or something like that, and you raised the right one rather than the left one because you're right hand dominant or something like that, right? As in contrast, right? Uh, monumental choices, like I chose to go to this university versus that university, right? There's always a reason. And when we drill down into those reasons, we will eventually find something that was beyond your control. This school was closer to home. This school was cheaper. The school, you know, I showed up on the right day and it was really, really pretty and I loved the campus because the sun was shining or something, right? So what does this mean then? For free will and morality, if it's really true that everything about you is the result of luck. Nagel says, right, the area of genuine agency, right, the space in which you can be blamed, can held responsible, and therefore of legitimate moral judgment seems to shrink under this scrutiny to an extensionless point, right? Right? Some of you may, when you think about your behavior, have in mind something like what we call the homunculus view of behavior. That inside of you, there's a little you at a control panel, like Men in Black style, right? Pulling the switches and stuff. What this view ultimately ends with is there is no little you in there. There's just forces pushing on other forces all the way down. This is a very Buddhist kind of view. There's nothing inside of you that is free of factors beyond your control. And therefore, there's really no independent you in there. You are what we would call a radically interdependent, originating kind of being. There is no separate self. All right? So what then does that mean for us? How do we deal with this? Is there a solution? I would say no. This is not the kind of problem that has a solution. This is the kind of problem that you learn to live with. So once again from my paper from my favorite loving paper Nagel, right? I believe that in a sense the problem has no solution because something in the idea of agency is incompatible with actions being events or people being things. But as the external determinants <laughs> of what someone has done are gradually exposed in their effect on consequences, character, and choice itself, it becomes gradually clear that actions are events and people things. Eventually, nothing remains which can be ascribed to the responsible self, and we are left with nothing but a portion of the larger sequence of events which can be deplored or celebrated but not blamed or praised. Think about that for a second, right? It's like a tornado, right? A tornado rolls through town. That's tragic, right? You can feel bad about that, but it's hard to understand how you could be angry at the tornado, right? Or blame the tornado, right? It's just a force of nature and we are likewise all just tornadoes. So what do we do? Where do we go from here if this is actually the case? And I think we ultimately can go to a more positive place than we live in if we spend our time thinking we have control over some things and not others, right? The first major upside of this is humility and compassion. Humility for your own successes and compassion for the suffering of others, right? Uh, To talk about this in a particular applied example, think about it in terms of prison systems, right? What kind of prisons we should have depends a lot on what you think about the individuals who are going into that prison. If you think that they are fundamentally evil people who chose to be evil, you will have in mind a more punitive kind of system, one that makes them suffer, right, because they deserve to suffer. Whereas on this view, no one ever deserves to suffer. So you get the difference between our wonderful American-style prison system and the better prison systems found in, like, Sweden, for example, right? Where the idea is, again, you'd still have a prison, but its purpose would not be punishment. It would be rehabilitation, deterrence, and the prevention of harm were absolutely necessary. If you have an individual who can't be rehabilitated and is inevitably going to cause harm if they're allowed to roam free, then you have to figure out some way to separate them out to reduce harm. But it's again, not for the purposes of punishment. So there are a variety of other kinds of applied examples where this can play out, uh, both in policy, things like drug reform, um, as well as in our personal lives. Being, making it easier for us to forgive ourselves and others when we do things wrong, and, and also making it easier for us to be happy in some ways when we do things right. Um, so uh, to wrap up, I'm just gonna preview a little bit of the objections, the things that often come up when people hear this view and they might still be resisting it a little bit. If you see yours up here, that's great. Feel free to shout it out during the, uh, during the Q&A section. Um, So the first major one is, I clearly have control, right? I got myself to this pub on time, roughly speaking, right? So, yeah, you did. What what we want to distinguish here, though, is between what we would call causal efficacy and this more robust idea of control, right? I'm not saying that you can't do things, right, that you will not act. In fact, I'm I'm arguing that you're going to act whether you want to or not, Right? You got here because something compelled you to be here. Um, and we can understand this distinction, right? We can think of, uh, for example, uh, machines, right? It makes perfect sense for us to program a machine to be causally effective, to win at chess, for example. But we would never accuse a chess-playing robot of having some robust self or a robust kind of control. At least not at this point, right? We'll get there eventually, maybe right? And the reality is, I think, there's no difference between that chess-playing robot and you. You're just a more interesting, more complex chess-playing robot, right? Another bigger, big concern, and this is a big one for me because I'm also a moral realist. I believe that morality is real. That's a whole nother talk. I'm happy to come back and do that one sometime, but or we can talk about it afterwards if anyone would like to. I do think that morality and some form of moral responsibility does persist beyond the death of free will, beyond the death of control. That we can still talk about these kinds of things in some ways, it just gets a lot harder. But it, it, that's what's the reality of how it is. Ethics is incredibly hard. Um, so, sorry, I actually got little of myself there, right? So that was the why not act morally, right? So. Why then would we not act immorally, some wonder, right? If we don't have any kind of control, why not just go crazy, right? And the reasons are the same reasons that you aren't a serial killer already. You don't wanna be, right? You are habituated in a variety of ways to not want to do immoral things if you're lucky, right? If you're unlucky, you do immoral things and that leads to a worse life for more people. Right? So, the reason we don't act immorally is not because we, have, we think we have free will. Right? The reason we don't act immorally is because bad things happen when you act immorally. It causes suffering. You don't want to cause suffering if you've been raised properly. So, those kind of motivations persist. Same thing with the meaningless to the question. Right? Some folks, I think, or like I said at the beginning, might slip into a kind of existential dread. At hearing that they have no independent self and everything about them is the result of things beyond their control, right? How can can my life have meaning if that is the case? It has the same meaning that it had before in terms of the pleasure and the pain, the flourishing that you can experience in your life, the good and bad that you can do for others with your causal efficacy, right? So none of that stuff actually goes away. We just change a little bit how we think about it, right? We don't get so high and mighty when we succeed. And we don't, you know, beat ourselves up quite as much when we fail. But life still has meaning, right? Like I said with the the sports, right? You go out into that field and you still have fun playing, even if you recognize that whether you win or lose is beyond your control. Right? So those things, I think, can persist. We can accept that. Everything is the result of luck all the way down and still go about leading good lives, caring more for others because we understand that they didn't choose to be poor or they didn't choose to be sick or they didn't choose to be miserable, angry people, right? We can have sympathy for them. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go out of your way to be infinitely compassionate towards everyone else. The reality is still going to be you got to take care of your own well-being, too, right? Put some distance between you and people who are not in any way helpable, for example. But it does make it easier to say again, right? Uh, one of my favorite stories uh, from the Holocaust. Um, take it back to my turn. <laughs> Hard left turn there, sorry. Right? Two individuals in a camp, right? One kneeling and praying. Another one comes up and says, what could you possibly have to be praying for in this place. And the other one says, I'm thanking God for not making me like them. That's where I think we get to with this no control view. So I'm gonna leave it there, um, and I'm happy to take some questions. If you're interested in this, uh, please check out um, Nagel's Moral Luck. It's only eight pages long. It's, you know, as philosophy papers go, it's, relatively speaking, readable. And I really do think that it, it lays out an incredibly compelling case for this position. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, if there
0: are questions, um, could i ask you to stand up. And, but I want to share the microphone. Because heaven knows what sort of germs I'm sharing. But if you do have a question, and please make sure it's a question rather than a speech. <laughs> um, so, do there, thank you, question. Toss is the classic testing button, you have no
1: idea whether it's going to be tails. And if you toss it
0: one a hundred times, you can be very confident that it's going to be between 45 and 55. So that mm-hmm. by merging lots of luck together, it uh-huh. actually develops control. And following that logic, you say, okay, everyone in jail isn't necessarily justified the being there. Someone's there for luck.
1: So okay, so let me take both those points, right? So I agree that we can predict things, even though everything is driven by luck. In fact, I would argue on this view, human beings are more predictable, right? Because we can stop thinking about them as being these magical, independent selves that radically freely act, you know, in some way or another, and start looking at the actual things that drive their behavior, right? Think of Crime as the classic example, we we now better understand how poverty and hopelessness can be the driving forces behind crime rather than a desire to hurt people. Though some people do also have a desire to hurt people, right? And it's important to understand that kind of psychology. Now, when it comes to the people in prison, right, if, if we're talking about in a rehabilitative sense, then I would say that if they are there because they actually did a thing and need to learn not to do it again, then yes, society has absolutely done the right thing putting them there. The only part that I'm arguing is that the reason they're there is because of factors beyond their control. Just like the reason you're not there is because of factors beyond your control. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not 100% sure that's entirely true about the coin, but for the sake of argument, let me say the, the thing I think that maybe is getting a little confused here is conflating control and predictability, right? Merely because something is predictable does not mean that we have control over it in the sense that I mean here, right? I can predict what I'm going to do getting up here and giving this speech because I'm obsessed with this topic, right? But that doesn't mean I have control. It doesn't mean that I can stop talking about the subject, right? It just means that I know I'm going to do the thing, right? Think Think of drug addicts, for example. Addictive behavior is incredibly predictable, but you wouldn't say they have control over it in a robust kind of way. So, I think, I think what you're talking about is predictability, and what I'm talking about is control. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm happy to discuss any of these things at length more afterwards. I, I promise. Say, you
0: do have to watch out for the Monte Carlo problem that each individual of the coin is going to be
1: luck. Right. We should point out that, like, yeah, the fallacy of um, the gambler's fallacy, right? Each coin toss is actually independent. You could get a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah, you should read that. Oh, I, I have. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it's a whole pieces, mm-hmm.
1: what about the people that are beneficial to society? Yeah. be like a meritocracy, right? No. Yeah. So this does force us to reconsider the realities of a meritocracy, and I think that's good because meritocracy is a problematic mm-hmm. idea, right? The reality is the people who have merit have it because they inherited it, right? You were lucky enough to have someone who sent you off to school because they could afford it or something like that, right? There's a lot of really strong evidence that a meritocracy is really just an oligarchy with much better PR, right? <laughs> People stratify into different castes, And you can obviously point to one or two counterexamples, examples, right? Somebody makes it up the ladder. But the reality most of the time is merit goes to waste because we get stuck into these different kinds of stratified systems. So there are folks who will argue that in deference to the realities of luck, we should move away from a meritocracy. So people should get to go to college on a more luck-based sort of format rather than, you know, the person who got to do the most extracurricular activities because they didn't have to hold down a job or take care of a sick family member, right? Those are the kinds of luck that I see every day When I'm teaching, and so yeah, I'm I'm genuinely quite skeptical that meritocracies ever exist, and if they do exist, if they're as good as we actually think that they are.
0: Yeah, thank you. I don't think I
1: like Nagel's approach much. That's a standard response. I understand that you're compelled to feel that way.
0: (laughs) I quite like the approach of the criminal law. OK. The criminal law has a mens rea and an act of something. Uh-huh. So there's a mental state of intentionality, and that is qualified by, mm-hmm. did you do the act? Mm-hmm. And that's a good shibboleth, I would say. Um, so if you're driving down the street drunk and you don't run someone over, then that's good. And you shouldn't. Or rehabilitated, or whatever fancy system the criminologist has cooked up. Du jour. Um, and if you do run someone over, then you've done an act. And the act qualifies the intentionality. A question? <laughs> yeah.
1: Could you please respond to. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The not right. a question. So, th- this is why I focus on the constitutional luck, right? Because mens re, guilty mind, is the result of constitutive luck. You have the unfortunate luck of being raised in such a way that you have that kind of criminal mind. Now, I think there's also real practical problems with mens re. For everyone who's confused why we haven't impeached Trump yet, it's because you can't prove a guilty mind very effectively. Right? It's very hard to prove intent in a lot of cases. This is why a lot of crimes don't have a guilty mind requirement. Only white-collar crimes, it seems like, oddly enough, tend to involve them, right? Because we tend to hold people responsible. We don't care if you intended to run over the child. We care that you ran over a child, right? So I don't think we're actually even consistent as a society with regard to (coughs) guilty mind. But if we were, we would still have to acknowledge that the mind is part of the determined system of the universe. It's not separate. It's not a magical entity that isn't driven by causal determinism and so what we should have for people with guilty minds is compassion and and putting our best minds to work helping them no longer have those guilty minds, right? We shouldn't view them as evil and castigate them as such, right? That That way lies Calvinism or other kinds of horrible Christianity, right? And
0: I point out one thing, if you do live in Malaysia, where there was the case of police who shot the robbers on the way to the bank, knowing that they were going to rob the bank, they had the intent.
1: Right. We, we can talk about Minority Report. I love that one.
0: Yeah, so I, I was really interested because I absolutely agree. I, I disagree with my learning friend here. I absolutely agree with all of you, got here, except where you got to the very end, uh-huh. and you said it's still, as a moral realist, still uh-huh. relates to are you able to click back to the slide
1: uh, maybe because you said
0: you still have the same motives as before and i would say the motives doesn't stand up to your test of the infinite So because i would say how did you get those motives and when did they come did you choose them i would say the two arguments are incompatible either morality doesn't exist and you're right or morality does exist and enabling yourself the wrong right
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very sympathetic to this concern, right? I love these two views, and they are in tension. But I think they're reconcilable. And it has to do with my views on what we really mean by moral truth, right? When we say something is morally true, what we mean is it's true independent of our beliefs about it, right? How many of you think that it would be wrong to torture puppies? (laughs) How many of you think... If everyone in society got together and voted that we should torture puppies, that would make it moral. One or two social constructivists. We'll talk later. Everyone
0: <laughs> pretending to throw the ball. Yeah. Everyone does this. Right. So so be, is, <laughs> my argument would be it is neither moral nor immoral to torture puppies, and people who have done so, yeah. according to this, do right. so based on coming I mean, from a puppy I mean,
1: torture. I would certainly agree. So, uh, halfway, right? I would agree with you that the poor bastards who come from the puppy-torturing culture do so because of things beyond their control, And but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't stop them, right? Go back to our friends the Nazis, right? Just because you happen to be raised a Nazi doesn't mean you get to keep being a Nazi, right? We're going to stop you because, and this gets into all of the foundations of ethics, because it causes harm, because it denies people autonomy in a qualified sense that we can still make sense of, right? Um, You know, things like coercion still make sense on this view. I can talk about you acting for better and worse kinds of motivations, for example, right? If you are motivated by a gun to your head, that seems like a qualitatively different kind of motivation than how you were raised, but they can often get very close together. So I think that the moral truths themselves persist beyond... The death of, of, of uh, free will. Moral responsibility is a harder one to make. It is a harder case to make. But I, I think that we can still talk about it in a qualified sense. That if you did this sort of thing because you didn't have a gun to your head, we're gonna hold you morally responsible enough that we're gonna, you know, get you to never do that behavior again, for example. It's not gonna be the kind of you know libertarian thoroughgoing moral responsibility, but it's it's going to be more than just saying you had absolutely nothing to do with it. So, but I, I totally am sympathetic, and it is a lot of work to con- to reconcile those two views. I yes.
0: Okay. I agree with the description of yours. Okay. I don't agree with the get Uh huh. Okay. okay. so do you do you think the difference between voluntary involvement and, involuntary and um, you know acts act, mm-hmm. and, and I have a number of other but 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 do you see it, but do you see how there's a kind of paradox? Sure, or, absolutely. Or, or, or uh, to my mind, a, confound, a confounding yeah uh, point to what you're suggesting and in uh-huh. you're saying because of this we should do this. That we should do is saying you should control
1: yourself in this way, as a response to not having control. Yeah, well, let me put it this way, right? How many of you feel like you're compelled by a good argument? Right. If somebody puts a really good argument to you, you'll change your mind. Okay. Why wouldn't that also apply to moral arguments? If I make a really good case for why you ought not to do something, right? If I put the puppy in front of you with the big eyes, right, and really compel you to care about that puppy, it will change your behavior, right? This is again, this argument doesn't say, I can't change your behavior. It just says, I'm gonna change it through factors that are beyond your control, right? If you're really convinced here tonight, it may impact how you view yourself and how you view others. And those shoulds will play a part in that conversation, right? So as conscious, empathic beings, we are sensitive Argument and especially to moral argument. So there's no reason that those kind of should arguments would have to go away, just because we recognize that whether or not we're compelled by them is not actually radically under our control.
0: So, you think the first person perspective having will?
1: So, and this gets a little tricky, right? I, you know, I will say that I, I hold myself responsible for things in a way that I don't necessarily hold others responsible, because that's something I, I feel compelled to do, right? That's how, that's how I was raised. But I do ultimately think that the goal should be, and this gets into Nagel's view from nowhere, right, to get ourselves as close as we can to that view from nowhere with regard to our own behavior as well as everyone else's. Recognizing, this is this is why I think this view is more, more consistent than the partial control view. Most people like to think, oh well, some people don't have control. We can acknowledge, right, we can all agree that the person who has the tumor on their amygdala that makes them go on the killing spree doesn't have control. We just have this persistent illusion that we're any different than the person with the tumour on their amygdala. And what the goal here I think, should be, through meditation, through observation, through practice, is to get yourself to realise that the difference between you and them is nothing.
0: In. Um, do we, is there not a greater good that comes from behaving as if we have control, when in fact we know that we don't? So holding two, two views at exactly the same time, mm-hmm. and more so the private um, aspect of behaving and different people,
1: but the mm. public acknowledgement, particularly when it comes to um, punishment for crimes and these kind of things that ultimately none of us have that responsibility. Yeah, good, and you describe it as, as sort of two simultaneous views, and the Buddhists put it this way as well. They have um, the two truths doctrine. Ultimately, there is no self, but conventionally, there is a self, right? You're here right now, you're a bundle of... And, and so the difference would be... Ultimately, we have no kind of control in the sense that I mean, but conventionally, we have causal efficacy, like I was saying earlier. And it's very important to believe in that, How right? To recognize, Well, it could, could come in the form of codes. It could come in a variety of different kinds of ways. But I mean, you're right in the sense that I should recognize that if I, you know, drive my car at 100 miles an hour down the street, I could kill somebody, right? 100 kilometers, excuse me. Right. (laughs) Apologies. Right. Um, So yes, it's very important to understand how we could negatively or positively affect other people, and that is, I think, totally compatible with recognizing that all of this stuff is ultimately not under our control in this deeper kind of sense.
0: What about Mm -hmm.
1: empowerment? Sure. and there, there is some concern about this. So, there was, this, there was one study that came out recently that said if you adopt my kind of no free will view, you'll act more immorally. Luckily, that study didn't replicate, so so far I'm okay. <laughs> None of my students have yet turned into serial killers that I'm aware of from getting them to adopt this view. And there, there is some interesting questions about if you hold a control view in certain situations, will you go the extra distance a little bit? Will you push a little harder, right? I actually don't think it's the case. I think that, you know, I buy thoroughly into this view and still go as hard as I can pretty much all the time, right? So, um, yes, that can motivate some people, but in the absence of that, I think you can still be thoroughly motivated by concern for others, flourishing a variety of other factors. Is that... Yeah, but at the same time, like even
0: the pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, yeah. if you tell people that that's it's not possible. I'll get to you
1: afterwards. After we'll talk more afterwards, I promise. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yes. Now, physics illuminates this a lot, I think. Physics tells us every event that happens in the universe yeah. is a result of previous events. Yeah. Plus and that ties in very well with this materialistic view. Mm-hmm. And we say that that also applies to machines and computers and even humans. The objective evidence is that that's the way all life runs. Right. There's nothing that comes into life that isn't There in physics. However, the subjective evidence, of course, is very different, and that's why we have a a discussion on free will and consciousness and awareness and the feelings. Yeah. Because so why is the subjective evidence so different from the objective? And it comes into my definition of free will, which is the feeling we get while our brain is making a decision. Yeah. So how does that feeling arise from the
1: material world? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that feeling arises much like your sense of self arises because it's adaptive, right? So, as you say, physics totally backs me up on this, right? I'm not a physicist, so I don't rely on the the, the physical side. I'm a a psychological determinist, right? I focus on how psychologically you're very determined by things beyond your control. But I could totally make the argument using uh, physics, right, from the Big Bang onward. Everything is a series of causal chains, and we are just parts of those chains. So where does the subjective part come in, right? Coming back to your question of motivation, I think from an evolutionary perspective, people developed the, these kinds of views because it was adaptive for them to do so, to see themselves as separate entities that had this kind of robust control, right? That doesn't mean that we can't live without it, but that explains, I think, where it comes from. And this is, this is what the Buddhists will say as well. Yeah, you totally have a strong sense of self. Go meditate some more. It'll go away. Right? It's, it's, an, it's a persistent illusion, but it's an illusion. Right? No
0: problem. Mm-hmm. I'm actually now curious that in order for this to take off a philosophical say design for the state philosophy, some people could say that there's actually a wider constraint in the work beyond that in society, and that um, you're going to have a certain ripple, but if you keep that ripple based on resource constraints in that society, yeah. and that creates its own kind of constraints the story. So I just yeah. think
1: Yeah, yeah. I often get described as a cheerful fatalist, right? Like nothing. Like going back to the original slide, right? Nothing is under your control, right? And that's fine. Relax, right? So, uh, yeah, it, we are forced to accept more limitations, which I think is being more honest with ourselves about the reality that we live in, and that that being more honest is a good thing. It seems like. Is that getting at your question?
0: Yeah. But I can't believe this in a constant state, but I
1: can also see other people
0: using it and a of, well, this is the of
1: nature or genetic chance. Sure. Um, like, there's so many beauty in that, it's a hierarchy to go. I actually do see this in a constant state, then, um, in, in a way. Yeah, the, the evil, dark version of what I'm arguing here is Calvinism, right? Calvinism says everything is determined and some people end up in hell and some don't, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? I, I definitely don't want to advocate that. I recognize that people could go in that direction, but I don't think they need to, and my hope is to get to them before they do, right? To suggest to them that, like, you can adopt this view and still enjoy life, still do moral things, not get sucked into that kind of ennui. And I will we'll all concede, right, before we came into this room, right, many of you probably struggled with motivation at various points, even though you thought you were free. So it wasn't like you were free of that problem until I started to sow doubt, right? So in a sense, I think, this can allow one to, if you really need to get better at motivation, for example, to better understand what is limiting your motivations, right? To recognize that the reason I'm not doing this thing is actually because I'm very afraid and I wasn't talking about that fear. But now that I've acknowledged it, maybe I can move past that, for example. Time for two more questions,
0: one of which would be mine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hi. Uh, so, you were talking about uh, there's been some study into how adopting this view affects people, yeah. but it's conflicting. Yeah. If there were robust longitudinal studies that showed it made people worse or yeah. made their lives worse, would you stop talking?
1: <laughs> At that point, I guess I would have joined the intellectual dark web, right, as someone who's being silenced for my controversial and dangerous views or something, I guess. I mean, look, I think this is true no matter the consequences, right? This is, this is the reality we live in. I hope that you can believe that and still be a good person and that sort of thing. I think that I manage it. I think that the people who I have convinced of this view also manage it. You know, if we found that it really did genuinely tamp down motivation or something, I would want to look at how they were presenting it to the people in that study. And are there ways that you could present it that would pull them in a healthier direction? Because as you were saying, right, this view could pull people in different directions, right? So I think my hope would be there's some version of presenting this that isn't going to lead to that really horrible kind of uh, lack of motivation and immoral behavior, or something like that. Um, but you know, if that comes up, then I got a more of an uphill climb. That's the problem. All
0: right? Okay. My question. Sorry. Yeah. I'm sure you can have chats afterwards. Um, I just like to ask a, a key platform that's often used in skeptics is scientific method. Mm-hmm. Right. Now we have a review in the next issue of the magazine, across <clears throat> which you're going to read when you subscribe, of a book called The Scientific Attitude. Okay. Which says attitude is more important than method. He says that the author, I wrote the review, by the way, so I know what's in there, (laughs) Um, he says that uh, science is more messy and quirky involving serendipity, failure, blind alleys, heartache, doggy determination, and the occasional stroke of luck. Mm -hmm. If scientific method relies on control and replication, Mm -hmm. is scientific method out the window? Uh,
1: No, it's just much harder, right? Which is the reality of science again, right? Uh, You know... Because luck plays such a large factor, I mean, you'll know the classic um, story of um, the guy who discovered germs, Semmelweis, who uh, was trying to figure out that he had these two um, wards in a hospital, and in one ward, people were dying after childbirth and during childbirth much, much higher than in the other group. And he set about under the scientific method to try to find, figure out what was doing it. So they're looking at all the different factors, couldn't figure it out. Eventually, some guy accidentally cut himself and died from a disease. And what they discovered was, the difference was, in the one ward, students from the medical school were coming over to that ward to do rounds after they had been doing autopsies on dead bodies. And they weren't washing their hands first. And the, re- the way he found that out was not brilliant deductive reasoning. It was dumb luck, right? So luck absolutely does play a factor in scientific method. But that doesn't mean that we can't still test things enough times to develop a sense of falsification, right? That's why these things are very important, right? You test, you try to disprove the theory, and if you can't disprove it after enough things, it becomes an accepted theory until something comes along and supersedes it. Isn't replication control? Um, so when we do replication, we are trying to control for as many variables as possible, Right? And scientists will readily admit that oftentimes it's impossible to control for all the variables. And that's why it's very hard to nail certain things down via science. It's why we still have the hard problem of consciousness. It's resisting scientific understanding in a variety of kinds of ways. So, again, I think that kind of control falls under the causal efficacy kind of side of the view here, right? That's, That's about... Recognizing and understanding what factors, what variables are in play, and trying to limit as many variables as possible. But that doesn't ever really get us to a robust kind of control. Um, But it does get us knowledge, I think. Okay,
0: would you please join me in thanking Aaron.